0: Welcome to the Journey Church Houston podcast. The Journey is a church plant in Houston, Texas, inviting people on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. Whether you are a skeptic, a spiritual seeker, or a committed follower of Jesus Christ, we pray this podcast engages your heart and your mind with the true claims of Christianity, why it is believable, and how it makes sense of our lives and the world. And we hope you're inspired to take your next step In your spiritual journey. In this episode, Stephen Hiller teaches on the mission of the journey. He shows how the secular story ultimately leaves people without hope and meaning in life. The Christian story, by contrast, offers the best explanation for the way the world is and why the world is the way it is, and it satisfies all of the deepest longings of the human heart. In the Christian story, we find meaning and hope and peace and joy. So let's take a listen as Stephen teaches on the mission.
1: Uh, my name is Stephen Hiller. I'm one of the planters of the journey, and uh, I also part time teach at Trinity Classical School. And So I teach eighth graders humanities and sixth grade Bible and poetry. And so I get to see 10 to 12 year olds uh, every week, and it's, it's just a joy. Um, and we're going to do actually, we're actually going to start our lesson on the journey's mission uh, doing an activity that I like to do with the kids uh, where we observe some paintings some artwork Um, so I'm not expecting y'all to be professional art critics but I would love if y'all can see can y'all see the the painting Um, this is a painting of Napoleon Bonaparte Uh, you don't know who he is he was a uh, uh, the emperor of France during the early 19th century, uh, after the French Revolution, the government that took over after the French Revolution utterly failed. And he took over and uh, and started his essentially a conquest of all of Europe, um, not unlike uh, Hitler would later do in World War II. But, uh, but yeah, if you all could. Make some observations. Just tell me what do you think's going on in this painting. What does it look like? What what do you what do you see? Is there anything that sticks out to you? And... You're
2: being examined. examined. Okay.
3: What was that? Being I see this guy in the left, like just looking really like just you know it
1: just mm. looks really down yeah and then this one almost
3: laying down looks like scared Scared. yeah they look like they're
1: not too happy about it no <laughs> what do you think looks wrong with some of the people like, do you think they the <laughs> Malnourished, yeah. Where's Napoleon? Kind of gave away that he's in the, the painting somewhere, yeah, the
3: middle,
1: but uh, the of the yeah, he's
2: uh, right here. Yeah, how is he? How is he touching him?
1: Yeah, i will give you all the name of the painting. And I want to hear what y'all think is trying to be conveyed here. N- name of the painting is Napoleon Visits the Plague Victims of Jaffa. Well,
2: that definitely changed the relevance. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so Napoleon um, is commissioned this painting after rumors of him spread of having killed plague victims in Jaffa. And uh, he is now. This painting is meant to be, be displayed for people to see and kind of learn more about who their emperor is. And, and he wanted to be painted like a Christ figure. He's going around, he, he's, ho- he's holding his glove in one hand. Clearly, he's touching a, a plague-stricken man with his bare hands. Um, kind of a, a healing, like kind of gentle manner. Um, but he's obviously trying to send some kind of message about who he is, what he's about. Strange enough, Napoleon wasn't a Christian. Um, he reestablished the, the Catholic Church in France after uh, the French Revolution had, had banished it, had uh, picked out the Catholic Church. He reestablished it, but his, he's famous for saying that the, kind of like Karl Marx did, where he said that the religion was the opiate of the masses Napoleon said that religion is what helps keep the poor from over, uh, overthrowing the rich. And so he wasn't a very religious man himself, but, um, but he loved using religious imagery of himself to try to paint a picture of who was really the, the one in power, the one in, um, in control in France. Um, yeah. Here's
2: another painting. Can someone tell me some thoughts about this one?
1: I'll tell you the title up front. This one's called The Miracles of St. Francis Xavier. guess
3: that's
2: St. Francis. Yeah. Yeah. What do you notice about him? <laughs> it's interesting that he's framed in the same direction as the angels in the. Hmm. Yeah, there's kind of like a the heavenly, divine side, yes. and a very earthy side. If he's been blessed. Yeah. Right.
1: Now this painting was commissioned by the Vatican. Um, it was um, after the Reformation and is part of kind of a movement to try to paint the Catholic Church in a positive image during the post-Reformation era. Um, this is a missionary of the Catholic Church to... Um, I not remember where... Asia and Africa, that's right. Um, and you can even see the destruction in the background of a Hindu idol back here. Um, but, yeah, the artist clearly wanted to communicate that the, the, the saint in question was, uh, was a divinely ordained person, was a, a divinely instituted person.
2: Um, yeah, very good.
1: Right, here's the last painting. I posted about this painting recently, so if you've seen my post on Facebook, don't <laughs> don't don't uh, chime in about the meaning of it.
2: <laughs> what do y'all notice about this one? Them and then all to the floor. Mm. Yeah, it is. No. A lot of white.
1: So I'll go ahead and stop our observations there for the sake of time. Let me explain a little bit about this painting. This is out of this is a quote out of a book called Saving Leonardo by Nancy Piercy. Says today most people define art in terms of personal expression, but that is a romantic definition. The Impressionists emphatically rejected it. Under the impact of empiricism. They declared that art should be merely a record of sensations, visual, and auditory effects. As the American impressionist James Whistler put it, art should appeal only to the artistic sense of eye or ear, without seeking to inspire any devotion, pity, love, patriotism, and the like. Edgar Allan Poe put the same idea more bluntly. Art has no concern, whatever, either with duty or truth. Visual artists began to assign musical titles to their work to suggest that a painting did not represent anything, but was merely an abstract harmony of colors. A case in point was Whistler's Symphony in White Number One, which is this painting. People debated endlessly who the woman was, what the white dress meant, was she a bride, what the wolfskin rug signified, why she was holding a lily, a common religious symbol, and so on. After all, viewers at the time were used to the idea that the elements in a painting were supposed to mean something. But the joke was on the public. The story was that there was no story writes art critic Robert Hughes. The woman was merely a model posing in Whistler's studio to give him a pretext to paint shades of white with extreme virtuosity and subtlety. The painting was to be evaluated solely in terms of its elements. The idea that the validity of art rests on formal elements alone is called formalism, and it represents a major break with all traditional concepts of art. Up to this time, the purpose of art had been to convey a message or a moral, to arouse virtue and courage, to instruct and inspire, to enrich, elevate, uplift, and refine. When Handel's Messiah was first performed, a nobleman hailed the work as a noble entertainment. Handel replied, My lord, I should be sorry if I only entertain them. I wish to make them better people. What I want us to see through looking at art is that there's no such thing as a worldview-neutral art that every piece of art is meant to communicate something, even if the communication is there is no meaning or there is no message. Um, And this happens in any type of art. It can happen in movies, music, theater. Every piece of art that we experience is intended to form us in some way to think about what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. Today we're gonna to look at mission
2: of the journey.
1: Can someone read the mission for me out loud?
3: To invite people on a journey. Discover the truth, goodness, beauty of the
1: Christian. Thanks, Ramsey. So we're starting off our series on the journey and our mission gatherings with the mission. Craig Bartholomew says in his book, The Drama of Scripture, in order to make sense of our lives, we depend on a story to provide the broader framework of meaning. To be human means to embrace some such basic story through which we understand our world and chart our course through it. The story we live out of is a narrative that explains the beginning, middle and end of the history of the cosmos. The telling of which helps us interpret the events of human history we see playing out before our very eyes. They answer the deep worldview questions about life. Have any of you heard of the term worldview before? Who can tell me what a worldview is? View of the world? View of the world? That's a pretty good definition.
3: Yeah, it is a view of the world. Theory of knowledge, theory of ethics, theory of beauty, aesthetics.
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's, that's a, those are both great ways of putting it. I'd say it's the accumulation of all our most fundamental beliefs about God and reality that affect who we are as a person, how we view the world, uh, and how we live in it. Um, and we, we want to talk about that in the context of the story that we see ourselves a part of. In the context of a story, it'll ask questions like, what is ultimate reality? Who are we as humans? Where did we come from? What is our conflict? Who is the antagonist of this story? What is good? What is evil? How will we solve the conflict? Where is this all going anyways? Leslie Newbegin says, the way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life is part? The questions that a grand story answers are uh, everything from the big, deep questions of life to the smallest questions of life, to the everyday, uh, moment by moment questions of life. How do I manage my money? What job will I pick? Should I have a job? If I, should I have a job I enjoy? Uh, Should I have a job that makes more money even if I don't enjoy it? Should I get married? What even is marriage? How will I raise my kids? Will I even have kids? How do I vote? What's the role of government anyways? What is justice? What is love? These are all questions that are influenced by the story that we live out of. These deal with the fundamentally human values of life. What is real? What is right? What is lovely? These values each and every one of us cares about because God gave us those values as his image bearers. These are values that God cares about, therefore being made in his image, we care about those things as well. These are questions that animals do not ask. These are questions that plants do not ask. These are questions that rocks do not ask. These are distinctly human questions. What is real, what is right, what is lovely. They deal with our intellect, our conscience, our imagination, because we are rational, moral, and imaginative creatures. Ancient philosophers narrowed these distinctly human values into three categories called transcendentals. These transcendentals are truth, goodness, and beauty. We want to know what is true. We search desperately for knowledge about our world and our place in it. We want to know what is good. We want to do what is right and just and avoid what is wrong and what is evil. And we search out for what is lovely. We crave beauty, spectacle, powerful emotions, feelings of awe and wonder. Our grand story influences what we think is true, what we think is good, and what we think is beautiful. We all live out of a story. But how do we discover these stories or become immersed in these stories? Sometimes it's by conscious decision. We research, we evaluate the offered stories of our world, and we pick the one that seems most reasonable. But sometimes the story that we ascribe to is caught rather than taught. I hope I demonstrated in our exercise earlier that we don't need to be deeply read in philosophy or theology to be immersed in any given story of the world. We're being bombarded every day by stories of our world through art, through uh, movies, through music, through media, through the news, through um, any kind of story uh, that can be played in, in books and novels. Art, music, and story are the canvases that communicate the collective worldview of our culture. And unless we're discerning through the arts, we're being formed to appreciate our culture's vision of goodness, truth, and beauty.
2: The significance
1: of story for evangelism and discipleship. Why does our church plant care about this concept of grand story? Leslie Newbegin spent several years as a missionary in India. He had a passion for sharing the good news that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins so that we might have eternal life with the Indian people. But the biggest obstacle to evangelism he faced was that the people could not conceive of the gospel as being true, good, and beautiful. After pondering why he was facing so much difficulty in sharing the gospel, he drew a connection between the story that they saw themselves as a part of and their understanding of reality. The Christian religion makes a very bold claim. Christians believe that the story presented in the scriptures is the true story of the whole world. It narrates the story of all of human history from creation to the new creation. It isn't and shouldn't be seen as a merely a private collection of beliefs based on preference strictly reserved for my personal devotional time. It's not one of many possible stories that we should pick the one that feels works best for us. Instead, like when we're reading a book or a novel or watching a movie and we interpret the goodness or badness of actions based on the context of that story, we should evaluate everything that happens in human history, in our life, through the lens of the Christian story. When one understands how bold of a claim the Christian story is, then you begin to see the difficulties in sharing the gospel with the generation that lives by a completely different story. The Indians that Newbegin was trying to reach had a big obstacle to believing the gospel. They interpreted the gospel that Newbegin was trying to share through the lens of their grand story, the inclusivist and pantheistic story of Hinduism. And it made the idea of Christ dying on a cross for the sins of the world nearly unintelligible. Sadly, Hinduism is not the only comprehensive story that renders the gospel unintelligible. Upon his return from India, he discovered that his home in England had succumbed to a false story of the world as well. It's the story that's taking root in America today and has evolved into the postmodern worldview. It's called the secular story. Just as Newbegin sought to reach a generation immersed in a false story, our church plant exists to reach a generation immersed in the secular story. We believe that our role in the Christian story is to fulfill what is known as the Great Commission. In Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20 Jesus, after he had been resurrected from the grave and is about to ascend to heaven and send the Holy Spirit to the church, gives his disciples their task for this time before his return. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. By the way, the the verses and passages that we're looking at are on the handout. Um, So if you don't have one of those, feel free to grab one. Like all healthy churches, our desire is to do just that, to make disciples of all the nations, And I'm sure many of you have come from a church that has a healthy desire to do that. But our church plan exists because we believe the increasing predominance of the secular story creates unprecedented challenges and opportunities for evangelism and discipleship. Never has the need been greater for sound knowledge of what we believe and why we believe it. Never has the need been greater for Christians to know why our story of the world is true and how it satisfies the desires of the human heart that the false stories fail to meet. Never has the need been greater for Christians to be trained to effectively share, not just the gospel, but the entirety of the Christian story and the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian worldview. So throughout our series uh, of mission team gatherings, we're going to talk a lot about how to effectively reach a secular generation. We're going to answer questions like, what is the Christian story, like Mace is going to share next week? What do we believe as Christians? How do we know what we believe is true? How do we overcome obstacles to sharing the gospel with the secular world? But today, what I want to spend some time focusing on is getting to know the generation that we want to share the gospel with. Um, I want to talk about the secular story. What is it? Well, in one sense, the secular story is unique in human history, never before seen in all civilizations. But in another sense, the secular story isn't new at all. In fact, it's been in existence since the fall of man. Can someone look at your handout and read to me Romans 1 18 through 25?
3: For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Is that which is known about God is evident within them? For God made it evident. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of the form of corruptible man, birds, the four-footed animals. Creatures, therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen.
1: Thanks for reading. What do you all notice about what this passage says about the fall, about the human heart?
2: they really do know the truth suppress yeah suppress the truth it means that what people believe is not just intellectual. yeah underlying factors intellectual yeah, intellectual. yeah.
1: I think the thing that sticks out to me is that the fall itself is the result of man's desire to worship the creature rather than the creator. Ultimately himself, right? But it does say that it goes from corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. But the end goal, the end, the end state of the fall is that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The I mean, fall itself... What's that, Ramsey? Mm-hmm. I
3: was going to say, and it's founded upon the fact that Paul says that, that God's invisible attributes are obvious. Mm. Yeah.
1: Blatantly obvious. Yeah. And so this strong desire to worship the self is to be... Uh, is even overcoming the most obvious most uh, plain to see uh, evidences of God's existence, of his lordship, of his control. Um, And his his sinful heart is blinding to that. Um, Yeah, so the fall itself is the result of man's desire to worship the creature rather than the creator. God created us for himself, and to represent him as his image bearers. But instead, we want to live apart from God and do what's right in our eyes, the evil in his. Even in the beginning, we were crafting stories of reality that centered on creation rather than pointing us to the creator. And you can trace through history this desire for autonomy and self-worship and numerous worldviews. You see it in pagan polytheism, Hindu pantheism, even different sects of Christianity and cults that abandon the basic fundamental Christian beliefs about reality. But I want to fast forward a little bit and look at the new edition of the secular story. In the 17th and 18th centuries, a radically new way of thinking about reality began to form. This age was called the Enlightenment. I think the history of the Enlightenment is something every Christian should study at one point or another, we're often taught in public schools that this was a grand time in human history where science and reason were finally freed from the shackles of religion and tradition, and humanity was finally able to pursue genuine progress. Now, while I think many things, good things happened during the Enlightenment, what is often neglected in these histories are the big ideas that guided the Enlightenment that may not be as obviously true as secularists in academia would like us to believe. We'll cover why those ideas are false on another day, but out of the Enlightenment came a new story of the world. Paul Gould summarizes this story well. He says, In the beginning, if there is a beginning at all, there was matter. All that exists are atoms and collections of atoms in the shapes of cells, aardvarks, dogs, humans, mountains, stars, and so on. Minds, or brains, appear late in the story but once they have arrived, they take center stage. Humans are vulnerable to the ravages of nature and of each other. So they begin to work together to understand the world and to protect themselves, to buffer their vulnerable selves from harm, from pain, and from death. Along the way, they also enjoy the gifts of nature, pleasure, warmth, and discovery. Where does this leave us? What are humans according to this non-religious story? How does it answer our questions of identity, well, humans are stardust brought to life. Blobs of organized mud were the happy accident of evolution. Humans are cosmic orphans on a vast sea of nothingness. Let me ask you a question. What does a story like this make of truth, goodness, and beauty?
2: What do you all think? The story? Mm-hmm. It destroys it? How? Well, I mean, because we're just accident.
3: Trying to understand the world that most of it we can't even access. Yeah. Trying to derive meaning from something
2: meaningless. Yeah. Any other thoughts?
1: Yeah, according to this story, truth, goodness, and beauty don't exist. They're not real. At least they aren't real things that exist outside of our minds, which have evolved to develop these concepts of truth, goodness, and beauty to help the human race survive and perpetuate our species. But it's all ideas formed by chemical reactions in our brain. They aren't realities that truly exist. This understanding of reality and humanity has a profound impact on how we live in this world. If everything's a random collection of matter and cells, then there's no intrinsic design or purpose for anything. There's no way that anything should be. There's just the way that things are. And there is no reason beyond that's just the way it is. But there remains, despite this new story, a desire in humanity to achieve some kind of fulfillment, some kind of purpose to live for. But if there's no transcendent should be, just that's the way it is, then who determines what should be?
3: The individual.
1: Yeah, we do. <laughs> Humans, just us. There's no God. Therefore, there's no higher power. There's only brute, purposeless existence. All we can do is try, to make, make hard, try hard to make sense of it and then do whatever seems best to us. The earliest Enlightenment philosophers, uh, the earliest Marxist philosophers, believed that this realization that there was no higher power than humanity uh, meant that we could throw off any and all previous ethical and political shackles and finally create a human utopia. But who got to decide what that utopia looks like? Who says that this is what humanity should even do, creating a utopia? And any hope for a utopia came crumbling down with the world wars in the early 20th century. What followed was probably some more consistent worldviews with the secular story. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche articulated the worldviews following modernism, um, pretty well. He said, God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? Notice that this just brings us back full circle. We're back to Romans 1. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Ultimately, the postmodern philosophers that followed the world wars would declare that if truth, goodness, and beauty existed only in the mind, and if no one in humanity could agree which version of truth, goodness, and beauty we should follow, then it's only Best that in regards to what is right, what is just, and what is lovely, we each find our own way. We are all gods in our own way. In other words, you do you. So, I want to briefly talk about the effects of the secular story um, and how it affects the lived experience of our fellow Westerners in 21st century America. One could do an entire graduate course on this topic, but I'm going to limit our discussion to two major effects. As we think through the effects, I want you to think about this. What are the challenges and opportunities for sharing Jesus in a world dominated by the secular story? What are the effects throwing out the true story of reality um, on a culture? And what about the true story of the world meets the longings of the human heart lost in in the secular story? So first, the first effect that a secular story has on culture is a world devoid of transcendence. Paul Gould says, The ancient inhabited a world drastically different from ours. Populated with gods and goddesses, nymphs and dryads, monsters and spirits, heroes and lawgivers, Their world was not tame or dull. Life was a colorful adventure, a battle between opposing forces. The world was supernaturally imbued with personalities and powers. At any moment, you might be in the presence of a god. Divine judgment for sins was a constant worry. The human experience of the world was one of mystery, enchantment, and sacredness. Not so today. The world has been emptied of the divine and the sacred. Our experience of the world is diminished. We no longer believe that gods and goddesses existed, except perhaps in our minds. And the same can be said for goodness, truth, and beauty. Values once thought to be the essential furniture of the world's living room now only exist in the realm of the human mind, Our world is disenchanted, and now we get to witness what it looks like when a whole generation is raised according to this story. A full generation of adults has been raised to see the supernatural and the transcendent as an impossibility. There's nothing mysterious about the world. Everything must be explained by some kind of natural cause, and as a result, anything and everything that gives meaning to human existence is gone when it's only explained by natural laws. What has this left us with? A world devoid of absolutes? A world without any meaning or purpose? There's nothing greater than ourselves. C.S. Lewis said, In emptying out the dryads and the gods, we appear to have thrown out the whole universe, ourselves included. When the disenchanted person looks out into the heavens and cries out, Is there anything more to life than this? The answer their culture story gives them is, That was the first effect. The second effect is a relativizing of truth, goodness, and beauty. In regards to truth, the secular person can look for facts about our universe and science, but in regards to meaning and purpose, he must look within himself. Religion has been marginalized to the fringes in the public sphere. Its claims as a knowledge tradition have been stripped and religion has been relegated to the realm of private devotion and personal preference. And in the wake of relativizing, Truth, we see a strong sense of apathy towards Christian truth claims. There's a strong anti intellectualism that's grasped our culture. Mere logical persuasion is ineffective to an apathetic person. It's not just that people won't listen to the logic of the Christian story, they just can't imagine that it could ever be true. In regards to goodness, the line between right and wrong is erased. Goodness is merely a cultural construct. It was a tool of previous humans to survive through oppressive control. But who's to say that's the way we must live now? That we're the dominant species? This is the only life we have. Do what seems pleasurable to you. The only overarching moral truth that exists is that we should all be free to pursue what our heart desires. And if anything gets in the way of that, then it should be disposed of. And then we begin to see a sort of antagonism towards Christian ethics. Even if we were to demonstrate the soundness of the Christian story, the secular story could not conceive of the Christian story as being good. And in regards to beauty, uh, the, the uh, idea of beauty only lies in the eyes of the beholder. Even beauty has been rel- relativized. And hence, when there is no objective beauty, the precious cultural products of Christianity that would seem wholesome or precious in ages past now seem antiquated, products of a bygone oppressive era. So a world devoid of transcendence, a relativizing of truth, goodness, and beauty. We as Christians know that these notions don't correspond to reality. God is ultimate reality. He is truth, goodness, and beauty. And I would argue that humans generally, humans in general intuitively know that these tenets of the secular story don't correspond to reality either. I think people are inclined to believe that there's more to life than this, that truth can be known, that there is a real good, and that there is objective beauty. Yet our desire to do what's right in our own eyes has led us to detach ourselves from the true story of the world. And the question is, What happens when we live by a story of the world that does not correspond to reality? I believe the inevitable result is despair. In Nietzsche's book, shortly before the quote I mentioned earlier, he says, How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? Backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? What do y'all notice about this quote?
3: Definitely recognize
1: Yeah. I think Nietzsche is probably one of the most Uh, consistent atheists
2: of our time. I say our time, long dead, but modern times. Does anything, any sentence or phrase really stick out to y'all? Yeah, it's a gloomy story. It's hopeless.
1: We unchained the earth from its sun. Is there still any up or down? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? I mean, is this not like a great description of our current culture? you just turn on the news any political commentary any kind of like youtuber who's talking about the times people clinging to a thread of meaning and purpose a thread so feeble that the slightest tug on it leads to relentless dread suicides are on the rise depression is at an all-time high yes the story the secular story is not new, it's been around since the fall, but this new edition of it, perhaps more consistent edition of it, is we're increasingly seeing effects of it on our culture. So the secular story is pretty pretty dismal. And I think that's something that should break every Christian's heart. We should look at our world and say, you're missing out on the greatest story ever known. But is there any hope to reach a disenchanted generation that's devoid of transcendence, that relativizes truth, goodness, and beauty, that's steeped in despair? I believe there is. C.S. Lewis was once a disenchanted person. He wrote about his journey in his book, Surprised by Joy. He said, The two hemispheres of my mind were in the sharpest conflict. On the one side, a many-island sea of poetry and myth, on the other a glib and shallow rationalism nearly all that i loved i believed to be imaginary nearly all that i believed to be real i thought grim and meaningless this is the perfect uh, illustration of, of the worldview that i was just talking about at the time of this sharpest conflict both he and his good friend j.r.r R. tolkien were professors at oxford c.s lewis made a remark to his friend about these stories he thought were imaginary he said to him myths And by myths, he means like fairy tales and stories, uh, like uh, fantasy stories. He said, myths are lies and therefore worthless, even though breathed through silver. It's hard to imagine C.S. Lewis saying that. What he meant was that there is no productive use for an enchanted story. for they only serve to perpetuate false imaginary dreams when reality is actually cruel and harsh. Tolkien, who would one day go on to write uh, the most legendary fairy tales of all time, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, did what any reasonable person angry at his friend would do. He went home and he wrote a scathing rebuke of his friend with poetry. In this poem, he does an amazing thing. He draws upon the longings for truth, goodness, and beauty deeply entrenched in C.S. Lewis's heart. And he asks him, What if it were all real? What if this thrill that you feel when you read myth was put there by your creator to draw you to something more? What if poets and artists and authors and makers of myth and fables are a tool in the hands of God to draw us to the true story of the whole world, sub-creators worshiping our ultimate creator? He says in his poem, and the poem's on your handout if you wanted to follow. This is just an excerpt of the poem. He says, the heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise, and still recalls him. Though now long estranged, man is not wholly lost nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned, and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned, his world dominion by creative act, not his to worship the great artifact. Man, sub-creator, the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. Though all the crannies of the world we filled with elves and goblins, though we dared to build gods and their houses out of dark and light and sowed the seed of dragons, t'was our right, used or misused. The right has not decayed. We make still by the law in which we're made. I will not walk with your progressive apes, erect and sapient, before them gapes the dark abyss to which their progress tends, if by God's mercy progress ever ends, and does not ceaselessly revolve the same unfruitful course with changing of a name. I will not treat your dusty path and flat, denoting this and that by this and that, your world immutable, wherein no part the little maker has with the maker's art. I bow not yet before the iron crown, nor cast my own small golden scepter down. In paradise, perchance, the eye may stray from gazing upon everlasting day to see the day illumined and renew from mirrored truth the likeness of the true. Then looking on the blessed land, twill see that all is as it is and yet made free. I'm going to skip down to the bottom a little bit. It says, in paradise, they... He's talking about the poets and the myth makers. Look no more awry, and though they make anew, they make no lie. Be sure they still will make, not being dead. And poets shall have flames upon their heads, and harps whereon their faultless fingers fall. Their each shall choose forever from the all. I will not walk with your progressive apes. The heart of man does not compound of lies, but draws wisdom from God, the only wise and still recalls him. Man still recalls his creator. What if it were true? What if there was a transcendent reality? What if truth, goodness, and beauty were real? Tolkien drew out of Lewis those God-given desires and snapped him to reality. He didn't use logic or brute persuasion. He spoke to Lewis's heart. He used beautiful poetry. He called upon the desires that God put in Lewis's heart and the Holy Spirit used it to draw him to the gospel. The Christian story was true. The Christian story was good. The Christian story was beautiful. And if the Christian story is true, then the gospel must be true. The good news that Jesus died for our sin and rose from the grave must be true. And a week later, after receiving this poem, C.S. Lewis placed his faith in Christ. My heart breaks for this generation. I see pain and suffering increasing on every side. Yet there is hope. There's hope to reach a disenchanted generation with the gospel of Christ. But it will take more than inviting them to church. It will take more than sending them a podcast or a YouTube video of a pastor preaching. It will even take more than a four-point gospel presentation, though I'm still a big fan of those. No, friends, it will take a massive reorienting of worldviews for those who've been raised on the secular story to even see the Christian story as compelling. It'll take even more to get them to see the Christian story as good and beautiful. It'll take time. It will take care. It'll take relationships. It will take calling out their desires that God has placed in them for truth, goodness, and beauty. It'll take thoughtful and engaging conversations. It'll take being intentionally missional about helping our friends know Jesus. For our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, it'll take a journey. Paul Gould says, We've discovered a story that is true to the way the world is and true to the way the world ought to be. We've traveled far and wide through time and the human heart And all the clues point to Jesus in the gospel story. Our quest has led us to this moment and to this place. The world has revealed its secret, its gold. Our hope was well-founded. There is beauty and goodness at the center of the physical universe because Jesus is at the center. Jesus is the beauty of all beautiful things, the good of all good things, and the truth to which all created things point. When you get Jesus, you get everything your heart desires, meaning, purpose, love. Identity, happiness, and rest. So we're inviting a disenchanted culture on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. Next week, Mace is going to cover what that Christian story is when he examines our first value uh, of being biblical. Um, my, uh, if you want to call it homework for y'all, uh, before we come back next week, I want you all to, As you're watching movies and TV shows and news and thinking about um, even art in general, communication, uh, what kind of stories are being told? And what stories are are the artists and the the communicators operating out of that they're speaking into this medium that we're often not very critical about? Um, There may be some goodness, truth, and beauty uh, in a lot of things by non-Christians. But everyone has a view of the world that's informing them. So I want us to think about those things. I've also included in your guide um, some resources. These are some books that I've had a, a big influence on uh, my understanding of how to reach this generation with the gospel. Um, in particular, I, I, I love Paul Gould and his cultural apologetics. Uh, and C.S. Lewis was a man ahead of his time. I read a lot of his stuff years ago and didn't understand what he was getting at. And then now that I read it in today's culture i'm much more aware of what he's talking about especially his book the abolition of man if you get the chance to read that one um and then he has a novel version of that if you want to see him write the philosophy that's in that book in just a story uh he wrote a book called that hideous strength um which is like a dystopian novel if you want to if you're into that
0: thank you for listening to the journey church houston podcast For more resources and to connect with us, including to learn how you can be a part of the journey, visit thejourneyhouston.org.